Wish you knew more about the medical device industry and how you can do your job more effectively and put your career on the fast track? Then stay tuned while industry veteran Pat Cothy shares strategies and tips from customers and company insiders who help drive the industry. Now let's join Pat as he explores how you can master medical device. Welcome. We've all seen the TV shows about life in the ER, but what is it really like? Today, we're going to hear from Dr. Paul Davidson, an emergency medicine physician with over 30 years of experience in all types of facility settings. He's going to explain what a day is like, who he works for, and how that's changed over the years, and products that have had massive impact on patient care. He's also an angel investor, and he'll share what he looks for when investing in a company. Dr. Davidson practices at several emergency medicine and urgent care facilities and is based in Colorado. His experience ranges from level one trauma centers to freestanding ERs to urgent care centers and small town facilities with very little backup. He's been involved in teaching and credentialing faculty and residents in in the emergency medicine ultrasound program at the University of Colorado, a program he spearheaded and helped develop as well as leading the effort for adoption of hypothermia after cardiac arrest at Centura Health and throughout Colorado. He earned his medical degree at Wayne State University and completed residencies at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center and the Denver Health Residency. Here's my conversation. Dr. Davidson, we're recording this in late February 2021. Uh, what's the last year been like for you? Well, it's uh, it's been probably the most interesting year of my career, as you know, with COVID. So we heard about this virus potentially coming over from China. And then all of a sudden it was in Seattle, you know, ripping through a assisted living facility. And, you know, just cases stacking up. We knew it wouldn't be long before it came to Denver, and it did. It had the opposite effect on our census, believe it or not. We didn't have a very robust flu season. We were have, we saw some cases in October, November, but flu was kind of tapering down by, by the time that COVID got here in March. So our numbers were actually way down. I don't think that's something that the public really appreciated, but the hospitals were empty. They canceled a bunch of elective surgeries. And there really wasn't, there was tons of room in the hospitals. So that by the time we peaked at about April 5th, we had very lean operations. We were furloughing physician assistants. We were cutting physician hours. Uh, there were physicians that were furloughed completely from different markets. You know, so if you had, let's say, three ER docs on at one time in your ER, you, you probably had two or one. We never got back up to normal. We're still at about 85% of what we were seeing back in 2019, early uh, 2020. That's that's number one. It was not New York City. Uh, if you if you were in the ER outside of a hot zone, you were twiddling your thumbs essentially and not making very much money. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I don't think a lot of the general public really understands that. Uh, all you saw on the night news were you know videos of New York City and the whole place falling apart, or Italy, you know, or some other hotspot. The other issue early on was we did not have enough adequate PPE. That is completely true. That we had enough gloves, and we were reusing our N95s, 
So in the back of my car, I had like four N95s and paper bags numbered one through four <laughs> that we were rotating. What we really were lacking was, were gowns and eye protectors, eye shields. So basically full on face shields. We, we didn't have any, which is basically a sheet of plastic with a rubber band. I mean, it's amazing. We just didn't have the equipment that we needed. Uh, we didn't have enough papper hoods, which are the, uh, you know, space helmet uh, air circulating hoods for intubating patients. They were on back order for, for 12 weeks. You know, if you're going to go intubate somebody, you just hope to have a face shield and N95. So yeah, those days, those days, the first peak that we had, it was, it was troublesome because of the PPE. It wasn't troublesome in terms of the quantity of patients. And then it was just the novelty of it, being scared as a, phys- you know, as a 50-year-old physician on blood pressure medicine that I was going to somehow catch this and bring it home to my family it was a little bit terrifying and unnerving. But as time went on and I didn't get infected, you realize that those things put in place, like hand washing, you know, being careful how you put on your equipment, being careful how you take off your equipment, which is called donning and doffing your PPE equipment, you know, limiting time in rooms where patients were known to have COVID or suspected to have COVID, those things, those measures really work. And so with time, you know, it became, and and the availability of PPE, we got face shields. It became more evident that we were were going to get through this. Um, As as a group of medical professionals, we were going to get through this. The drugs got better. Remdesivir came out. More ventilators were available. More ICU beds were available. And then the numbers really dropped off uh, in, you know, May, June. And we had the chance to regroup psychologically, regroup in terms of equipment, in terms of drugs, so that when we were ready for the second peak in November, it wasn't as big a deal. Plus, we were starting to get vaccine. My first vaccine was a few days before Christmas. And then uh, in early 2021, I got my second one. So from the standpoint right now, with the numbers going down, with the vaccine, vaccinations going up, it's a much better place to be than, than you know in February, March of 2021 versus February, March of 2020. What are the patients uh, like as they're coming in a year ago versus coming in today? There's a lot more information out there. Uh, we've passed half a million deaths right now. What do, what do patients feel like when they're coming in today? Just their mindset. I think they're, I mean, they're still pretty freaked out. They're, they're worried. They're very worried for, you know, I'm not saying they're over worried. They're just they're concerned about their health, about the health of the other people they may have exposed in their family. So I would say last March, they, there was pure panic in people's eyes. Um, now, I think with more understanding of the disease that, you know, look, you're probably just going to need to be admitted on oxygen for a couple of days and get these other therapies like convalescent plasma, remdesivir, steroids. That's all we really have to offer them at, at this point until these other antibody therapies and these other immune therapies come out. Uh, and we're sending some people home on oxygen. You know, that's that's all they get. We didn't have that uh, option back in March of 2020 that we have now is is to be able to just say, look, it, we, do, we didn't have rapid testing. We have a test that takes about 30 minutes now. It's wonderful. I mean, the tests were taking a week or 10 days at the beginning. So it's it's I think people are more at ease um, than they were last March. They have more information. There's more therapies. We understand the disease. Uh, we understand which risk factors are bad, like chronic lung disease, chronic heart disease, advanced age, diabetes, obesity. Those are big risks. We understand who's going to probably crash and who isn't and when they crash. You know, it's about nine days after the diagnosis or the onset of symptoms is when people really get sick. So there is time to, to do things beforehand to start some therapies. 
So I, I would say as a whole, we're in a, we're in a better place than we were last year, for sure. The patients themselves understand they're, they're very knowledgeable about, about coronavirus. So I saw an article last month where emergency department volume in one area was down 30%. And uh, you said, you know, still down 15%, you know, kind of where you are. There's been debate over the years about too many patients showing up to the emergency department that don't really belong there. Do you think that this has changed anything with how, you know, how many, you know, what type of patients are coming into the emergency department in the future, or is it going to go back to normal? I don't think it's ever going to go back to normal. I think people have discovered telemedicine for one, telemedicine with platforms like American Well and um, Teladoc have really exploded and other, other smaller ones that you may not be aware of uh, where people are uh, having telemedicine visits with their own physicians. And I have to say, as a, as a big fan of telemedicine, we, we've been praying for this for a long time, for this switch to get flipped on, uh, to get reimbursed for it, first of all, and then for patients to embrace it and for physicians to embrace it, uh, because these are fantastic platforms. You can do so much with a telemedicine visit that really doesn't have to be an in-person visit. So I think telemedicine has taken some of our visits. Others are just directed, uh, you know, through telemedicine to go get that ankle x-ray for the sprained ankle done as an outpatient now and just bypass the emergency department completely. Uh, platforms like uh, like Dispatch Health, which are, you know, basically house visits on steroids. That project and company was launched from our group uh, by a guy named Mark Prather, and I was involved early on. So those kind of forces of telemedicine, in-person visits, um, and just bypassing the emergency department is going to have, I think, a permanent effect on our volume. Um, the volume of low acuity patients. Now, the higher we are acuity, we've been tracking since the uh, dawn of uh, COVID-19, and it's clear that the patients that do end up in the ER are sicker. That that's without question. Yeah. So we're you're right. It's melt. It's morphed the emergency department in from you know, less acute sore throats and ankle sprains or just don't show up anymore. Early on, uh, there was a, a lot made of um, cardiac patients or pa patients that really needed to be coming to the ED uh, were not showing up at the ED. Has that turned around? No, not yet. Um, so we're coronavirus causes um, a lot of endothelial damage to the blood vessels. So you see things like large vessel strokes in young people, which is, you know, exploded, uh, clots in the legs, clots in the lungs with coronavirus. So those patients are showing up later. People are just ignoring diseases like diabetes and infections and dental work and things like that, that, you know, to, to the point where they have to come to the emergency department. It's like, oh my Lord, you know, this person is drop 30 pounds from their diabetes and, you know, they're, they're really not looking good. So we've seen a lot of that. And you touched on two of the biggest things, which are strokes and heart attacks, uh, patients not coming to the ER with chest pain and essentially just dying at home. I read in New York city during the peak the first peak, um, they were declaring and on an average day in New York city, apparently they were declaring like 50 people dead on the scene from cardiac arrest. And it, it went up to like 500 a day. I mean, it was insane. And it's not like the, these disease processes like cancer uh, and uh, heart attacks stop. I mean, they never stop. Those diseases don't take a you know take a nap. They don't take a rest. Uh, they don't take a vacation. It's just that the people stop presenting with them. The cath labs were empty. I mean, 
they weren't doing any cases because people were just like, well, if I go to the hospital, I'm going to get coronavirus. So I might as well stay home and just tough this out. And wow, it's just, yeah, we've, we've had some public uh, education campaigns around that with the hospital chain I work with in Colorado and with the American College of Emergency Physicians, other people just get the word out that it's okay to come to the hospital. So let's um, shift gears a little bit from, from Corona and just talk a little bit about emergency medicine. So you've been an emergency medicine physician for 30 years, and I'm sure you've, you've seen it all, but um, can you give me a, a little bit of a day in the life of, uh, of an emergency medicine physician? What's, what's a typical day like? Well, it's, I, you know, it's really a privilege to be able to work um, as an emergency physician. I think it, you're seeing people on their worst day, you know, their, their broken ankle. They're, they're, these are visits that they'll remember, you know, potentially the rest of their life, getting stitches, uh, having a heart attack, having a stroke, getting admitted with sepsis. I mean, these are big events in these people's lives and their families. It varies. Uh, so emergency physician, let's say between on average about 15 to 20 shifts a month, you're working a combination of day shifts, uh, midnight shifts and afternoon shifts. You show up for your shift, you you know, log into your computer, you get your stethoscope on, you now it's a ritual of, uh, you know, wiping down your station and getting your PPE ready to go. <laughs> so there's a couple added steps before your shift. And then you go see patients. And um, for a while, it was like every other patient had coronavirus. And now it's not that at all. Um, I don't think I've seen a positive case for probably three or four days. Uh, so you're seeing patients that have minor injuries, uh, lacerations, contusions, sprains. You're seeing patients, a lot of them are medical and not trauma. So you're seeing people with uh, runny noses, ear infections, particularly children, cough, chest pain, abdominal pain is a big one. Patients with appendicitis, you, know, you have to fish through symptoms. You, you know, Essentially, as a doctor, you, you sit down, you take a history, uh, you do a physical exam, you order the appropriate lab and radiology studies. You make a differential diagnosis, which is like what what is the what are the you know three things, four things this patient could have that are most likely. In emergency medicine, you have to put an extra layer of caution on that. What are the three or four things this patient could have that could kill them? You know uh, that you can't miss. You absolutely cannot miss things like an aortic dissection, uh, things like a heart attack, things like appendicitis. You simply can't miss those diagnoses. And then you sit down with the patient, you're, you're giving them pain and nausea medications uh, and sometimes antibiotics very you know, frequently, and then you come up with a plan. So it's the old, the old thing for you know, the lay public is SOAP. It's subjective, what the patient tells you, objective, what you see you know, on your physical exam and labs, and assessment is A, and then a plan. And then you know, to, to basically teach people how doctors think, that's how we think. How many patients uh, do you normally see on a shift? So we, we practice in a number of different settings, the freestanding emergency departments and urgent cares. Um, it, you know, it's, it's all over the map with coronavirus. I mean, I've had shifts where I've seen two patients in eight hours all the way to, you know, 22 patients in eight hours um, in the freestanding ERs. In the hospital setting, we typically see more, but you have the availability of an advanced practice provider, which is the new term for a PA or a nurse practitioner is an, is an APP. So you'll have a APP sidekick and the two of you will usually go through at least 30 patients in an eight hour shift. So let's talk about triage a little bit. So you've got um, patients that are coming in or, or, or you know, walking in or being brought in. 
how does the board get set up? Who, who does that and, and how do you triage the patients? So if it's uh, busy enough, they'll have uh, a triage nurse. And then for, for the walk-in patients that will assign them a category, it's called an ESI category, one through five. So one is somebody who needs an, you know, uh, needs to be shocked or intubated immediately. Those are, those are called ESI one. And ESI five is somebody who's there for like a medication refill. You know, I ran out of my lisinopril or something. So that's how the walk-ins are handled. The ambulances are handled through a biophone. So the paramedics call and sometimes transmit electrocardiograms or, you know, other data. They tell you what they're bringing. And typically those patients are, are sicker. You know, the ambulance patients have probably a 20 or 25% admit rate, you know, admission rate to the hospital. And the ones that walk in, it's more on the level of like 5% admit rate. You know, so the, obviously the, the ambulance patients are sicker and get assigned a room immediately. You know, they don't have to wait in the waiting room or anything like that. So that's how triage basically works. So if there are three physicians that are that are on, on shift at that point, how is it divided? Who gets what patient? It's kind of uh, like watching jazz or <laughs> listening to jazz, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, you're, you just kind of make it up. Um, you know, it's like, well, if I'm busy doing a spinal tap, I'll just tell my partner, like, look, I'm doing a spinal tap for the next 10 minutes. I can't really see an ambulance. And they're like, cool, gotcha, got your back. You know, so they know that, yeah, we, we talk to each other. It's all good. There's not, you know, competition to, to see those patients because usually there's more than enough to go around. <laughs> Let's, let's uh, get into a situation and tell me what you're thinking. So you've got a, a waiting room that's that's full. Uh, you've got a couple of, uh, of exam rooms um, that you've got patients in, and you know that there's a patient, possible MI, that's coming in with the ambulance. What are you thinking when you go into the exam room and you know everything else that's going on? You try to put up a wall uh, between what's going on outside of the room and what you know, what, what you're dealing with, you're taking a history, doing a physical exam on a, you know, a sick, worried patient when chaos is reigning supreme. I mean, you have some options. You can call and help. You can just, you know, most of the time, just put your head down and get through it and just take care of the sickest patients first in terms of acuity. And that's the other thing about triage I didn't mention is that you take care of the sickest patients first. So just because, you know, somebody has a sore throat and somebody got stabbed in the chest, obviously, you know, and the sore throat's been waiting a half hour. You, you just have to let them wait a little longer. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm-hmm. you just have to, you know, take care of the chest, you know, put the chest tube in, you know, and then go deal with the sore throat later. So yeah, you just, there are other options you could pull. You can pull hospital resources down. You can have the, you know, the nursing supervisor, the entire hospital help and start getting people who have been languishing and they are waiting for their bed upstairs. <laughs> um, you can call a mass casualty. You know, there's all things you can do. You can call a surgeon to say, you know, I need you to come down and write admission orders on this guy now. You know, I got to clear this place out. And then the last trigger you can pull is just going on divert or what's called divert or diversion to just shut off your ER from any further ailments until the chaos can be stabilized. Yeah. See, there's several uh, things at your yeah. disposal. You can call in an on-call provider. You know, there's all kinds of things you can do. Are you doing your own triage too, or your own management too? Saying, okay, I know this this patient's going to show up in the ambulance in 15 minutes. I've got uh, the, a 10-minute procedure I can do here, or I've got a 15-minute procedure I can do here. Are you doing that as well? Yeah, or, or go empty your bladder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a juggling act. Um, yeah. yeah. 
and often it's nice to get advanced warning from the paramedics that they're coming in and what they're coming in with. And so you can do things like get respiratory therapy down, go ahead and get your intubation equipment out, go ahead and call the cardiologist, you know, go ahead and call the trauma surgeon and just get your, all your ducks in a row before that patient arrives. So there, there's some advanced planning you can do. And then, yeah, you just have to figure out if, if I've got a, you know, go drain an abscess, you can't do that when, when there's an ambulance coming in, you can't, Sometimes the procedures just have to wait, unfortunately. And, and you just make it up. I mean, you just, from experience, you realize what, what you need to do next. And then after that, and then, you know, your day will unfold um, and just make order of the chaos. So you've worked in your 30 years, you've worked in level one trauma centers. You've worked in community hospitals, freestanding ERs and urgent care centers. What's the difference between all of those different settings? Um, you know, at a level one and a level two, there's lots of help uh, and there's lots of expertise you can tap. Um, you know, your cardiologist, your infectious disease specialist, you know, you have a lot of resources. So it's a, it's like a big comfy blanket. Yeah, a level two is almost as good as a level one. Um, so you have a lot of specialists that can help you. And it's great, especially if you're at a place like I practice at Little Town Venice Hospital, where the medical staff is, is just outstanding. Uh, it's a great community hospital. When you move into these other places, like I've worked in rural places like Leadville, Colorado. I've worked in Granby, Colorado, where it's a dock in the box and you're it. And uh, if there's issues like weather, you know, where they can't get a helicopter in and out or the ground ambulances are going to be four hours, you know, you, you're it. There's a little bit of unease with that. And some providers don't choose to go to those arenas because you have to be able to intubate anybody that comes in or they're they're dead. I mean, you have to be able to manage bleeding patients, patient that needs urgent airways, you know, patient with a heart attack who might stay there for an hour because there's no way to get them out. And you have to rely on, on you know, a different set of rules uh, to get those patients taken care of. I had a snowboarder come in in Granby, uh, you know, he's probably about 11 years old and his, his forearm was angled at about 90 degrees. <laughs> and we didn't really have the conscious sedation drugs. So I did something called a beer block, B-I-E-R, not the kind of beer you drink, where you put an IV in the hand and then you put a blood pressure cuff on. And then you inject a numbing, the same local anesthetic that you used to numb a tooth, lidocaine, you know, where you used a, a soap laceration and you inject lidocaine in the hand and put the blood pressure up, cuff up so it doesn't have a chance to escape the arm. And then you can do whatever you want to that forearm with the patient completely awake. So you have to rely on things like that when you have limited resources. And, and a similar type of situation at an urgent care, or I'm, I'm assuming the patients are a little bit different. You're not, you're not seeing MI patients walking in. Right. So I, I work for a hospital system called Centura, where the rural sites and the urgent cares, there's a one call system where you have access to those admitting doctors and those consultants. So it's a nice it's nice to be part of a health system. Not all people practicing in rural areas are. It, at an urgent care, you, you still have things like imaging, a basic lab called a stat lab, where the nurses or the paramedics or the even sometimes the x-ray techs are helping run the labs. So you have a, a small lab on site that can give you the essential things like a blood sugar, electrolytes, uh, blood counts, uh, pregnancy tests, uh, strep tests, urinalysis, uh, urine, you know, what's called a urine dipstick. You don't have a microscope in urgent care. So you can't do things like spinal fluid, joint fluid, 
you have to courier those out um, and hopefully get an answer, you know, within an hour or two. So that's, you know, it's, it's a little, uh, I guess, less unnerving being in a, being in a suburban urgent care or freestanding area where you have the resources of the mothership a few miles away than practicing in, you know, in the mountains in Colorado in the middle of the winter. Let's, let's go to the business side of things because a lot's changed with emergency medicine physicians and how they work in the last 30 years. How has, how has it evolved uh, in, in your uh, career? So I was in academia um, until 2000. And then I joined a group, um, small group of emergency physicians. I was the 14th doctor that they hired. And uh, it was really a band of brothers. We staffed two um, suburban emergency departments, and we've since grown to four suburban emergency departments, plus about five urgent cares and freestanding ERs. So now we're at nine places that we staff. And uh, the way I describe it to people is like, uh, we ran it like a fraternity, (laughs) Uh, for better or worse. I mean, everybody had a vote. And we had, you know, sometimes pretty raucous business meetings, but we were all friends. We were all in it together. We covered each other when we were sick or on vacation or holidays. And there was shared sacrifice. Um, In 2015, we sold our group to a corporate entity and it's run like a corporation. I think one of the hardest things for me to get used to was a uh, sort of the organizational tree. We, it was just flat. Everybody had a vote before, you know, for better or worse, it was run as a democratic group. Now it's run as a corporation with a, with a organizational tree. So that's definitely different. There are some big other players on the scene like team health and envision Schumacher. There's other gigantic ER groups. Now for the moment, there's not a ton of growth in the field uh, just because COVID has really uh, put the screws to people's wallets when it comes to mergers and acquisitions of buying other small groups. So that might change and get better in the near future. You know, it's it's just a different entity, um, you know, working for a very large staffing company versus, uh, you know, a fraternity. <laughs> yeah. So in the early, in the early days of the specialty, what emergency medicine's been around since when as a, as a specialty? Um, in the, in the 1980s, um, it, you know, some of those seminal, Residencies were formed in the 70s, like in Cincinnati, um, Denver Health, you know, some of the early pioneers in Detroit. Um, And then, you know, I think the first board exam, probably around 1980, was the first American Board of Emergency Physicians exam. At that point in time, um, the physicians, many of the physicians were employed by the hospitals. And now we're in a in a staffing situation. Why, Why did that change? Some of the hospitals still employ their their own physicians. There's various models. You know, even within a big health system like William Beaumont in Detroit, even William Beaumont has some doctors that are hospital employed at some hospitals, and they they contract with a big company called Team Health to staff some of their sites. It, it's so variable depending on where you are in the country, um, and 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 there's some systems that will flip their emergency physicians from one staffing company to another because there's outcomes like quality. And there's outcomes of efficiency. And if you don't meet that as a physician group, you know, you could be out. The hospital employed physicians is an older model. The newer models promise more in the way of quality and outcomes. And so that's, you know, the new game is value-directed healthcare. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, What are the key metrics 
within emergency medicine? Obviously, outcomes is one. Uh, what are some of the other metrics that, that uh, people are looking at to manage the department? So there's, you know, door to needle times um, with thrombolytics for stroke. There are, uh, you know, door to balloon times for, for STEMI. Um, sepsis is a big one now. Um, just making sure you have antibiotics within an hour and the appropriate, you know, number of liters of fluid given. You know, then there's other measures that look at just not sending wasteful lab tests, blood blood work on people that don't need it. And then there's other measures like, are you CAT scanning too many heads, you know, for minor head trauma in children? If the kid really didn't lose consciousness or vomit, you know, and is not acting in an altered way, you know, has altered mental status, why are you getting, why are you irradiating little Johnny's head? You know, so there, there are other measures that are, that are grouped to look at, at things like that. Do they look at room turnover, uh, walkout rate? Um, oh, for sure. The hospital administration. So there's, there's various um, things that we get judged on. So you mentioned some things like people like American College of Emergency Physicians or the government are looking at like, you know, door to needle times and, and um, you know, outcomes with stroke and outcomes with sepsis. But yes, your hospital administrator is certainly uh, going to be looking at things like uh, door to doctor times and uh, left without being seen times and things like that. Yes, for sure. So there's, yeah, there's, there's so much scrutiny on what we do, you know, in terms of going to the ER every day and, and working, you know, that, that, yeah, there's, you're being watched in several different ways. And, you know, the electronic health record, like Epic is really great to, to, to mine those things, you know, to get the data to the, the providers that are looking at it. There's different compensation models out there with different physician things. What type of compensation models work within this staffing company? Are you involved with insurance patients? Is, is that anything? Do you have patient satisfaction? Does that play into it? What's the compensation model look like? So a lot of it is just based on um, some, some groups. You look at these things called relative value units or RVUs. The more productive you are as an emergency physician, if you're seeing, um, let's say, 2.5 patients an hour instead of 1.5 patients an hour, you're a more productive emergency physician. So we track the number of patients seen per hour. And are you doing procedures on those? You know, we never want to do unnecessary procedures, but the more procedures you do, the more you're paid. So, you know, obviously you need to go about your day as an ethical emergency physician and don't do procedures that are indicated. But if you can do things like document the time that you spent properly and document an ultrasound if you did it yourself or you know, document the length of a laceration um, properly, you know, you'll get paid what you, for what you did. And so, yes, we, so part of our pay is what's called RVU or relative value unit based. And so if you're, you know, you're cranking out patients and doing really well, you'll see a quarterly you know, a little uh, bonus in your paycheck for based on your number of RVUs. Because we want to, you know, we don't want a really efficient emergency physician to get paid the same as somebody who really just doesn't get off their chair to go see patients as fast. We want the, we want patients, we want doctors to be rewarded for their time and effort. Part of compensation is the RVUs. The other part is either an hourly or roughly type of type of thing. Mm -hmm. Hourly. Is, is there, uh, is there a patient satisfaction score that fits in there too? Not really. 
Um, you would think it would, but it, it's really hard to parse that data. As a facility, you will get a patient satisfaction score that's like zero to 100, and your, your facility will fit into a, a number. Let's say you had 93% uh, top, that's called top box performers, where they the patients rank you like a five, five out of five stars. Um, and so it's really hard to parse that data per doctor. We've done it. But the software you have to get, because it comes kind of blinded, and you have to unblind it for a provider. So you will get that satisfaction broken down. But we typically, it's more for education purposes, not to penalize doctors who may not have a top box score. Because some of the patients are very difficult to um, deal with on the setting. Uh, there's some hospitals that just have a lot of meth, you know, and a lot of alcohol and a lot of psychiatric patients that you're not going to get great satisfaction from those patients. I mean, it, they don't even answer the survey. So it's really tough to, um, you know, to penalize doctors for based on the kind of patients that they see. There's just some practice settings that are just better than others in terms of uh, the demographics of the, the population and their ability to answer a survey. You know, so it's kind of, you know, you don't want to stack the odds against the doctor and penalize them just because they're seeing, you know, a lot of urban uh, displaced, um, you know, drug addicted, psychiatric, alcoholic patients. It's just not, it's not fair. Some physicians get to get to see the patient when they walk in the door and they follow them all the way, all the way through and see a successful outcome. In many instances, you're just seeing the front end of that and not, uh, and they may end up at surgery and somebody else is following them. How is that personally? Do you, do you do you wonder about what's going on or do you kind of, you know, okay, my, my job is done and now I'm going to move on to the next patient? Yeah, I, I do follow um, my patients and the advent of the electronic health record has made that so much easier because I have a list that I'll go back to. Often I might have, let's say, two days off between shifts or a day off between shifts uh, or the next you know day I might be on again. And I'll, I'll typically speak. If I've got a little bit of downtime during the shift, I'll look those patients up. It makes me a better doctor to see those through. But in the old days, we had paper medical records. It was very difficult. You had to actually get out of your chair, go upstairs to the fourth floor, you know, and go to the patient's bedside and find out and you know, read their chart and see what was going on. Because you just don't want to miss things. You know, you often wonder, did I make the right call? You know, did I yeah. did I make the right call in intubating that patient or assigning them this diagnosis? And how did they do? You know, because I really do care about everybody I see and want to make sure that I'm doing the right things in the ED. It makes you a better doctor. Oh, great point. So let's talk about technology for a second. In, in 30 years, I'm sure you've seen some really interesting technologies that have helped you do your job better and help patients better. Are there a, a few technologies that have really changed the way you practice? Yes. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, it's, and it's really incremental. When you look back at 30 years of progress, you're like, wow, like the way we took care of patients 30 years ago, it's clearly better now. Um, but it, it's kind of sneaks up on you. You'll, you'll hear a talk, you know, a lecture, you'll uh, meet with a, let's say a drug or a device rep and start, you know, looking at these new technologies. So I can, I can name a handful of things that have changed the way we practice. One is the Arctic Sun device, which is a hypothermia vest. So Imagine you've had a cardiac arrest and your doctors uh, shock you, your heart back to life, but you're, you're in a coma. So 30 years ago, you just would have admitted that patient to the ICU and crossed your fingers and hope they wake up. Um, and their chance of waking up is about 30% and being neurologically intact after a cardiac arrest. What we discovered in the, in the 
early 2000s is that if you take those patients and you freeze them, so you take their body temperature from 98.6 down to 92 to 94 you know, degrees or so and leave them in a hypothermic you know, coma, they're all intubated on a ventilator because they're in a coma. So if you freeze them for 24 hours and wake them back up, their chance of neurologic recovery is now about 60% instead of 30. So that's, that's an incredible leap forward. So we use these, basically these uh, vests and thigh pads that are circulating ice, ice cold water to get their temperature correctly, you know, placed in, in the low nineties and leave them there for a day and then gradually warm them up. So that's called hypothermia after cardiac arrest. That's been a huge advance, just getting IVs on people. So we're using ultrasounds to put IVs in in difficult patients that don't have veins. The other thing we could do as a last resort is a device called the EZIO, where you basically drill an IV directly into the bone or the, the tibia or sometimes in the thigh into the femur or in the shoulder in the humerus. So that's that's been a big advance, especially in the field, you know, the, where the paramedics can't get an IV and somebody that, that direly needs one. Um, drugs, yeah, I could talk about drugs for a minute, but drugs like adenosine to to convert uh, somebody that's heart is going, you know, way fast. Uh, you know, there's been some great drugs that have come out, but back to devices, things like the glide scope. So in the old days, you had to use an L shaped piece of metal with a light on it to put, to put mm-hmm. a uh, tube in somebody's throat. And you had to be able to visualize the vocal cords. Well, now there's a thing called a glide scope, which is a fiber optic L shaped piece of plastic instead of metal, but it, it, uh, it allows you to intubate around the corner because you've got a camera. So you can see the vocal cords around the corner and you can intubate around the corner. So that, that's been a huge advance to getting uh, airways into people. You know, in, in emergency medicine, we talk about the ABCs to resuscitation. A is airway. You know, so a, getting an airway is the most important part of that chain of survival. Um, things like using bedside ultrasound, which was just in its infancy when I started training in emergency medicine in 1993, has advanced uh, mightily. So we're using ultrasound, uh, emergency physicians are using ultrasound machines, which used to be just in the purview of the radiologist to put things in like central lines. It's so much safer. We used to just basically guess the patient's anatomy and put needles in their neck. And sometimes you would hit the carotid artery. Sometimes you would puncture their lung and, you know, or just keep missing the vein. Now you can see the vein and watch the needle go into it. That's amazing. That's a huge leap for patient safety and for efficiency of the procedure. So those things come to mind, um, you know, off the top of my head as devices that have changed the way we practice in the last 30 years. And I'm sure that there are a lot of other devices that you're using that have incremental improvements uh, that are advancing things, but aren't quite as uh, revolutionary. Yes. So some other things like using rubber bands to treat abscesses. We're talking about uh, the old way of draining an abscess was to take a take a scalp, numb it up, take a scalpel, open the pus out and put cotton packing in. Well, now we're using these things like vessel loops or uh, drains to just basically sew a rubber band, you know, drain the pus, put a rubber band in and then discharge them and have them cut their own rubber band at home instead of coming back every two days for, you know, wound checks. So things like that are, you know, they're minor things, but for the patient, it's, it's a win. You know, it's clearly a win. It's a win for us. Um, so, you know, vessel loop drainage of abscesses is another example of just a minor thing that, that, you know, when you stack up these minor things over 30 years, it really makes a difference. You're right. And uh, kind of going back to the uh, abscess thing, uh, very shortly, you're going to have another new product that can help uh, to treat those abscess patients even a little bit easier. So how do you learn about new products? Um, I mean, I read, um, 
I, I look at the emergency medicine blogs. I watch, you know, short videos and things on YouTube. I read the Annals of Emergency Medicine. I talk to my colleagues, watch lectures, uh, things I'm interested in um, within emergency medicine, like ultrasound, medical devices. Um, one thing we did with friends is is found a company called Heart Hero, which is a AED that runs on a couple of household batteries, which I think will revolutionize the AED market. AED being? Uh, an automatic external defibrillator. So the things you see on the airports everywhere on the walls <laughs> that... Um, you know, miniaturizing it and having it run on a couple of household batteries. So just, you know, maintaining just current uh, engagement in emergency medicine, reading the, the free newspapers that, that they put in your mailbox every month and just staying abreast is really important. You didn't mention sales representatives or companies. Right. <laughs> do, do, you not, do you not see sales reps? Well, yeah, it's been tough with COVID because the the representatives for device companies have been, you know, essentially banned from the hospitals because they just didn't want extra bodies around in the hospitals. So drug people, you know, that sell drugs or devices have it, one of the startups that I'm involved in called DB Medics, which makes a, a bladder ultrasound scanner. So this is a device that tells you how many milliliters of pee are in your bladder, which is, believe it or not, is important. But that company, which I'm an investor in, has had difficulty getting into hospitals over the last year. They're just starting to get back in. But yeah, our sales took a serious hit, um, as a lot of devices have uh, during this this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, for two reasons. Uh, one, just the number of patients that are out there. And number two, the, the access to, to decision makers. That's right. That's right. The stakeholders, decision makers, you know, we've They've had to, the device companies and drug reps have had to be very creative with things like Zoom, you know, and holding sales uh, businesses, you know, business meetings that way. Yeah. And plus hospital budgets have just been directed toward obtaining PPE and other things uh, with less income coming in the door because of all the, the surgery cancellations that, you know, elective surgery is the way a lot of these hospitals stay afloat and make money is is through elective surgery. So it's been a really hard time for healthcare in the last year. When you see a technology or product that looks really interesting to you, typically what is it about it that interests you? Is it the the clinical outcomes? Is it the speed of use? Is it how friendly it is to use? Is it the cost? What what a, what kind of is your criteria look like? That's a good question, Pat. I think it has more to do with, is the patient going to benefit from this technology at the bedside? Uh, so in terms of like, let's say the Arctic Sun, where you're improving their neurologic outcomes, 30% to 60%, you know, being neurologically intact, going back to your job. Yeah, that's what makes the difference to us as physicians is how it's going to impact the, the outcome of patients. You know, am I going to have a better uh, first try success rate with this new, you know, glide scope, this new intubation uh, device, you know, am I going to puncture less uh, carotid arteries and puncture less lungs uh, need that is going to cause me to, you know, cause harm to a patient and have to put a chest tube in um, if I use ultrasound to put in this IV in the neck. Yeah. I mean, it really, we really live our lives around our patients and what's going to happen at the bedside. Uh, and so for me, it's always outcomes. Is this patient going to have a better outcome if they're defibrillated earlier? Because we did, you know, designed this really cool defibrillator that you could carry in your purse and runs on household batteries. That is amazing. You know, so we'll be able to defibrillate many more people, you know, within eight minutes, which is really when you need to shock a patient back to life with something like Heart Hero. 
and have defibrillators in the home, you know, where they really need to be. They're, they're, they're just so expensive and just clumsy and big. You know, if we can shrink the AED down to six inches by, by, you know, six inches by one inch and have that run on household batteries and connect to your cell phone, that'll be revolutionary. So yes, it's always about, to me, it's always about the outcomes. So kind of going back to the the sales rep thing, pre-COVID, did a lot of sales reps show up uh, in the emergency uh, department? And if they did, what what stands out between a good sales representative and one that's not so good? You know, so we, yes, we did have a lot of typically more pharmaceuticals with um, antibiotics or cardiac medications, those sorts of things. Devices in emergency medicine, they typically don't visit the emergency department that often. You know, a good, a good sales rep is somebody that is respectful of your time, that maybe schedules things outside of a, a hectic shift, maybe schedules a lunch or sort of a table you can drop by after your, you know, you typically emergency physicians have a monthly meeting, a business meeting, an educational meeting. If it can be scheduled around that, that's better than just showing up in the emergency department where we're really busy and distracted. Um, so I think the good ones plan ahead for things like that. Maybe plan, a, let's say, a happy hour or even just coffee and bagels at a, at a business meeting is just smarter. So I think, yeah, they have to be respectful of your time. They have to be knowledgeable and be able to field questions. They have to be able to bring peer-reviewed literature. So you don't want to just take the sales rep word for it. You want to see patient trials and studies and you know actual data because we try to practice uh, evidence-based medicine which means that medical evidence, not just somebody's saying it's good, you know, prove to me that it's good. So bringing literature and, you know, plugging that into evidence-based medicine paradigms is really important for us. So you mentioned a little bit ago that you've been involved with companies that are innovating, uh, both uh, as as a speaker, as well as uh, an investor, uh, angel investor in these companies. How did, how did that start? How did that come about? Well, we had um, just a really great group of emergency physicians in, in Denver that um, work with Centura. So uh, the name of the group initially was Emergency Physicians at Porter Hospital, because um, that's where the group was founded. And one of the first entrepreneurial things we got into was an app called iTriage. Uh, it was led by Peter Hudson, a uh, really amazing forward-thinking emergency physician in our group. So we all invested in this app that eventually sold uh, like four years later to Aetna for a large sum of money. <laughs> and so Congratulations. We, oh yeah, no, it was great. And it was good for patients. It's really a neat app that hooks up physician or uh, hooks up patients who are having medical problems with doctors and answers health questions for them. It was a really intuitive iPhone app. Um, so that's how we got started. And then the next thing after that was this bladder scan company called DB Medics, which is led by Bill Quirk, uh, one of the other physicians in our group. Um, so we all became investors in that. And then after that, there was uh, Heart Hero, which was one of the physician assistants in our group, a uh, guy named Gary, who founded Heart Hero along with Bill um, and got involved in that device, which is just approved for sale in Europe. We've obtained the CE mark and we'll hopefully be getting FDA approval, you know, we hope in, in a couple months. So I've just been really fortunate to be in a physician group where entrepreneurship is uh, celebrated and innovation is, you know, is celebrated and, and ultimately invested in. What interests you that you would invest in a device? They have to have the right team. So it's got to be 
you know, you have to have a capable CEO and a functioning board um, to really get a product to launch, I think. So that's first. It's got to be a great idea. It's got to lead to better outcomes in patients. It's got to be executed properly um, through the verification validation process and marketing and all those pieces have to be in place and you know to have confidence to to to, that that's going to be a successful investment so you mentioned you've got a got a couple that have been or have been successful are in the process of being successful have you had some that haven't been um well it wasn't really a device but it was a piece of software that we were trying to develop as a group that was called Carno MD, and it was all about uh, physician data. It's about uh, sort of is that physician productive? Is that physician? You mentioned patient satisfaction. We were able to parse that data, and uh, you know, basically have a, a dashboard for an emergency physician. Are you seeing, how are you compared to your peers? Seeing numbers of patients, are you capable of making them happy? Do you have better outcomes? And it was uh, nobody wanted to buy it. <laughs> We developed this great piece of software that nobody wanted. You know, in terms of devices, I haven't had a failure yet, but I've been pretty picky about what I've invested in. I've I've let, you know, several other things go. Um, just took a look at it. I didn't either like the team. I didn't like the idea. I just felt like they didn't. It, it wasn't going to be successful. And I've been in the uh, ASAP innovation um, sort of uh, judge panel. ASAP. Over- ASAP being American College of Emergency Physicians. Yeah, right. I should yeah tell spell that out. But yeah, American College of Emergency Physicians, every fall at their October meeting, they have a innovation um, uh, competition. Uh, Heart Hero one year, one year. And um, so you get, to, you get to vote on what do you think are the best devices coming out. I've been a judge on that panel. And you just see some really great ideas, but maybe not a very good team, not a very good execution. And, and then you've seen some really fantastic ideas uh so it's it's kind of a combination of is it really going to help the patient the bedside is this the right team to lead this to market are they going to get approved and and uh you know voting in that in that capacity i think it's been really fun to see the things going on so you mentioned you know kind of two things uh, the team and and the technology is it 50 50 for you or or does it weigh one way or the other yeah i think it is it's an even split um, you've got to have, uh, you know, a visionary, hard-charging uh, person in charge of the company to, that can explain the mission and explain to investors uh, how they're going to get it to market and, more importantly, how they're going to get their money back. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and what time frame. All right, exactly. It always takes longer than you think. You know, you could just take what they tell you and probably multiply it by two and you'll get an accurate answer <laughs> of when you're getting your money back. Um but yeah, you have to have that that sort of visionary, hard charging person um, that is going to take the reins of the project and is going to have accountability. I think it's it's really interesting that you kind of straddle both sides of things. You're a user of the product, but you're also an investor of the product. So you you kind of can have an idea on what is going to be clinically relevant, but you're also you know have your business hat on to say what is going to be able to get there and are we going to be able to uh, you know really commercialize the technology. Right. I think, you know, as a practicing physician, you have the advantage of seeing patients at the bedside. And I think especially emergency physicians have um, a great BS detector (laughs) to be able to say what, you know, is this really going to change outcomes? You know, we're we're very skeptical by nature that 
something is going to be better than what we're doing today, but we're open to new ideas as well. So I think we've got a good filter to, to say if something's really going to help at the bedside or not. Is there anything that you think the general public or medical device companies don't know about emergency medicine that they should? The evidence, I think, for what I'm about to say is, is there, is that we understand the entire house of medicine. Um, things like surgical conditions, medical conditions, pediatrics, geriatrics, you know, the whole spectrum of patients that come in the door. So I think emergency physicians are, are they, we understand the entire house of medicine and therefore get tapped often for entrepreneurial endeavors and for also administration. So hospitals see us as a really good fit for things like chief medical officers of the hospital. Uh, because again, we're not holed away in a laboratory. We're not just seeing let's say pediatric patients, we're not just seeing pregnant patients, we're seeing all patients. So I think emergency physicians offer a really good window to the whole house of medicine. And I've told students this before that are thinking about becoming a physician or thinking about becoming a nurse practitioner to come rotate with us in the emergency department, and you'll see a little bit of everything. So it's, it's just a really great place to work, you know, in terms of understanding, uh, trauma and medicine and old people and pregnant people, pediatrics and gynecology and infectious disease and, you know, orthopedics, neurology, all those things kind of meld in the emergency department and offer a really good view of the world of medicine. Our listeners are in all different functions within a medical device company. It could be in research and development, could be in clinical regulatory uh, CEO of a company, sales, marketing, all different types of things. Is there anything that you'd like to say directly to people working within the medical device industry? I think that it's really important to come spend time with us, to come spend time with physicians at the bedside. And I bet you'll get some really great ideas just spending some time you know, in a physician's office, in the operating room, in the emergency department to see where the needs are, You know, the difficult patients that we have trouble managing from a device standpoint you know let's say a, we have a bladder scanner that is every time you push the button it gives you a different value <laughs> so there's i had a patient the other day the bladder scanner was telling me it was either zero cc's of urine in the bladder or 400 <laughs> and depending on how you pulled the trigger and you were off by a couple millimeters you know it just gave this wildly inaccurate thing so i mean things like that are a good example of just you know, you could help us if you came to the bedside more and see what we're actually dealing with every day, you know, or a device that closes skin. I mean, the the, the other thing I failed to mention earlier on in the innovation front was dermabond glue. So basically medical grade sterile crazy glue to suture lacerations with glue, you know, closed lacerations with glue instead of stitches that you have to then go get out. Um, so that's another thing where getting those people to the bedside and seeing the outcomes. If device people would just come spend a week with us, I bet you would come up with two or three really great ideas to take back to the laboratory. Great stuff from Dr. Davidson. Uh, a few of my takeaways. First, everyone in the industry needs to back this up a couple minutes and listen to his last comments. The only way we can assure we're solving the problems that need to be solved is to be there alongside the physician and see and hear the problems and the nuances firsthand. There are no shortcuts here. It is the most important step in product development. You have to nail the need before you even think about beginning the design.
Second, buying criteria. He said patient outcomes is the criteria, but he requires clinical validation in the forms of studies, publications, and his peers. A shoeshine and a smile may have cut it for a few physicians, but most want the hard facts. Make sure you deliver them clearly. Finally, I really enjoyed his comments on where and when to meet him. Because this, this isn't just for meeting a physician, but it's with most of our contacts. So many people are focused on the me and my needs. Most people are juggling a lot of things. Make sure you're not the one that just barges in. Come into someone else's world gently and be about them and their needs first. Trying to talk when they aren't ready to listen is a waste of breath. Thank you for listening. Please spread the word and tell a friend or two to listen to the Mastering Medical Device podcast, as interviews like today's can help you become a more effective medical device leader. Work hard. Be kind.